week was Good Friday, so we looked at the whole um, episode of the crucifixion. It's important, real doctrinal. It's the foundational pillar of the Christian faith, and it's, it's an application to our lives today, uh, 2,000 years later. Uh, today, what I'd like us to look at is the resurrection. We just celebrated uh, Easter Sunday. And I want us to look at the resurrection and open up into discussion why this is the <coughs> most important event that ever happened on planet Earth, bar none. This is it. This is the central pillar and column of the Christian faith. Remove this, and we're going to see even the Apostle Paul says our faith collapses. So let's go to what's known as the resurrection chapter at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And perhaps somebody could read verse 1 through 4 in a loud voice, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 4. <clears throat> now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I believe you, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Okay, thank you, John. What's some of the important elements that are contained in those four verses? Anything? He died for our sins. Okay, he died for our sins. Jesus was not like another religious teacher that gave good instruction or inspiration or like the Buddha, the Four Noble Truths. He came to die for our sins. And we looked at last week the necessity of the fact that Jesus came to die. Everybody else is born into this world in a sense to live, but Jesus is born into this world to die. And that's why he'll, John will introduce Jesus at the River Jordan by saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's Paschal language. That means sacrificial lamb language. And of course Jesus in John chapter 2 will even, he constantly is prophesying, predicting his death. He says, Destroy this temple. The three days, I'll raise it up again. Death, resurrection. And what else? Number one, he died for us. Yes, Mike. The mo one of the probably most important things here is this is an eyewitness account of Jesus. Okay, Paul says, this I received, and then what does he do with it? Once he's received it, pass it on. Pass it on. Uh, this is a very important point, that every generation of Christians have been entrusted with the gospel, and we have to pass it on to the next generation. That's why it'll say in Jude, verse 3, contend for the faith that once, once and for all delivered to the saints. And if you study church history, there's times when this really sags, when the, the, the gospel message really gets low, so to speak, in the dark ages and times in the Middle Ages. But every generation, like Paul says, I've received this, now I'm going to pass it up. Uh, of course, he's doing that literally with Timothy and these fellows he was discipling and mentoring. What else? Number one, he came to save us from sins. Number two, he received it. He's passing it on. What else? Anything in those four verses? It came from the scriptures. It came from the scriptures. He, he says that twice because it's locked into the scriptures. What scriptures? Well, Old Testament, 1 Corinthians, even non-believing scholars will tell you this is one of the earliest letters written of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians, the Gospel of Mark, very early. Uh, but so what scriptures is he drawing on is Old Testament. Just like in Luke chapter 24 when Jesus meets the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he doesn't say, look, it's me, I'm risen. What does he do? What does he do in Luke 24? He's walking with those two guys on the road to Emmaus. He, he explains, starting with Moses and the law and the prophets, everything concerning himself. 
It's after that they say, did not our hearts burn within us as he opened to us the scriptures on the way. The power of using the old to verify the new. And again, we looked at this last week. There's no other holy book in the world that has this dual source of authority. It's, it, it can't be done. It has to be inspired and written by somebody out of space and time. Just what it is. What else? Anything else in these verses here? By this you're saved and by this you stand. In other words, he's saying it not only saves you, but it establishes you if you remain in it. So this is the foundation for what's known, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the resurrection chapter. And he will actually go on to say uh, in verse 5, and that he was seen by Cephas, or Peter, then by the twelve, and after this he was seen by over 500 people. So when we look at the scriptures, and particularly the resurrection, that is the key, the resurrection. It says in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, that John runs to the tomb with Peter. Peter goes the first one inside, and then John comes in, and he sees the empty tomb, and it says what? He sees the empty tomb, and what? He believes. He believes he sees the empty tomb. There's seats up here and over here, too, guys. He sees the empty tomb and believes. And so when you look at the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, how long was he on earth after he rose from the dead? Forty days. He was on the earth for 40 days. And he, if you study that 40 days, he's only meeting with believers, number one. He meets with individuals like Mary, like here it says Peter. Uh, he meets with groups, like he did with the 11 apostles. Here, 500. And Peter, uh, Paul even says... Um, some of these are still alive, that you can go talk to them. They're eyewitnesses to the risen Christ. He, he meets with them outside, uh, as he does at the shore of Galilee when he has breakfast, John chapter 21. He meets with them inside. He converses with them. He, he, he not only eats with them, he allows them to touch him, Thomas. And so what I'm saying is he, he's given them many reasons uh, to believe that he is indeed the risen Christ, as he predicted as he prophesied numerous times uh, throughout the Gospels, that he would be delivered up to the Gentiles, and then he would be uh, sold, uh, delivered to the Gentiles, mocked, crucified, and rise on the third day. Were the apostles looking for him to rise on the third day? No. 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 Were the women that went to the tomb looking for him to rise on the third day? No. No, no they were taking the anointing, uh, you know, myrrh and everything else to anoint his corpse. So they, but uh, one of the big reasons we're going to see, many reasons why we can look back at the resurrection, why it is true indeed, is the fact that they changed. They were changed. And if you look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and just read, maybe somebody could read here, uh, verse 13 uh, through 19, please. 1 Corinthians 15, 13 through 19. And note that if there's no resurrection, what does that mean? What are the consequences if there's no resurrection? We have no we hope, have no, no faith. Well, read those verses first. If somebody would read those out loud. Verse 13 through 19. There is no resurrection of the dead, that even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. Our preaching is useless. And so is our faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. We have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. 
And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only of this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Okay, if there's no bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, what does that mean to us from these just these five, six verses here? We've got nothing. Yeah, we, oh. yeah we're done. Yeah, well, I mean, specifically. No resurrection for us either. There's no resurrection for us either. Because don't forget, Jesus was the first fruits, and we enter into that. So one of the things of his resurrection, it's a promise to us that one day we will indeed rise from the dead. What else? It's our foundational pillar. It's a foundational pillar of our faith. What else? No victory. There's no victory. We're false witness. Ah, one, time, one more time. We're false, which means basically what? It's a nice King James way of saying what? Liar. We're liars. We're promulgating a lie. What else? <coughs> We're still in our sins. sins. Not only that, we if that's what we believe in, it didn't happen, we are most of all people to be what? Pity. It's like you believe in the tooth fairy. Or you believe in, you know, yeah, right, okay, kind of. You know, we're to be pitied. But if it's true, then everything changes. Then our, our testimony is true. Then we are not in our sins. Then that we have this expectancy of the resurrected body. Then <laughs> we are blessed people. We're not a being pity people. You understand? Everything clips into here, here. And so the basis of this, of course, is why did Jesus rise from the dead? Why did Jesus die on the cross? Look at verse 20. Now, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or died. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. That's why Jesus had to come and die. I talk with people of different religions and worldviews and they say, we like the model that Jesus gives us. We like the words he gives us. We like his parables, his example. Why did he have to die? And you would say, why well, get a drink of tea? To fulfill the scriptures. Pardon? To fulfill the scriptures. Number one, to fulfill scriptures. If he doesn't die, then all those scriptures that talk about the ultimate sacrifice are unfulfilled. What else? In Christ will all be made alive. In Christ we're all made alive. Without the shedding of blood, there is no there's no remission of sins. A man, he says here the first Adam lost it. The second Adam, or what's called the last Adam, Jesus Christ, regains that which was lost. It was lost through a man. It's regained by man. How be it the God-man, Jesus Christ. An uh, angel couldn't do that. An animal couldn't do that. That's why it says in Hebrews 10, all those sacrifices, lambs and bullocks and all this, were not adequate. They just pointed to the fact that the soul that sinned dies, that the, there's going to be substitutionary. The innocent will die for the guilty. You see, there'll be the shedding of blood. Why? Because man doesn't need, most all religions are about information, okay? Christianity is about transformation. If you get the, if a doctor, we got doctors in the room here, Dennis. Uh, if you get, if you get your diagnostic right, how easy does that make the treatment? That's about 85% or 90% of the deal, isn't it, to get the cure? But if your diagnostic is wrong, you got the wrong cure. Man's problem is he's dead, spiritually dead. 
That's why it says in Ephesians chapter 2, we are all dead in our trespasses and sin. Man is, doesn't need to turn over a new leaf. He doesn't have to be reformed. Yet get rid of these morals, immorality, all this other kind of stuff. That's not the issue. We do that because never be surprised when a sinner acts like a sinner. That's by nature what sinners do. We need a change of nature. And when we come after the fact that, you know, Uncle, I wish Uncle Bob would quit smoking and this one's doing drugs and this one drinks too much and this and that. That's not the issue. That's just a manifestation of a fallen nature. We need a new nature. That's why we're dead in our trespasses and in Christ Jesus we receive that new life. As it's well been said, Jesus did not come and die on the cross and rise from the grave to make nice people nicer. Amen? Amen. <laughs> he came to make dead people alive. Amen. Any question, any thought on any of this? I'm going a little bit. Anyone? Okay. Now, let's turn um, just for a second to uh, Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1. And this is Luke, of course. Um, Luke, by profession, is what? Physician. He's a physician. And, and Luke, even skeptics of the New Testament, have a hard time with Luke because he locates, he's so accurate. You know, he's got like this jeweler's eye for detail. He'll tell you who the proconsul is, what harbor we left in, this, who's Agrippa, who's the wife of, you know, Festus. All, he just has high detail. So it's hard to discredit that he would have all that and then enter all this line and error that he's putting in the Gospel of Luke or the Book of Acts. But notice what he says here, uh, verse 1. The former account I made, what is that? This is the Gospel. The gospel of Luke. Oh, Theophilus, what does Theophilus mean? Holy one. Or Theophilus, lover of God. Maybe that could apply to each one of us. Are you a lover of God? Am I a lover of God? Anyhow, Theophilus, both that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up through the Holy Spirit and given commandments to the apostle whom he had chosen. Now this is the operative verse here, verse 3. To whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, okay? Many infallible proofs. And we're going to look at some of these this morning because, again, the resurrection is the key to the Christian faith. All other religions have a basis or moral code. You know, you got the four noble truths of, of the Buddha. You have the five pillars of Islam. You have this, you have that. You know, do this, don't do that. That's not what Christianity is about. It's a dying and rising savior. And so he says, there's many infallible proofs uh, being seen by them during the 40 days and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So here Jesus is manifesting himself physically, walking around, talking, conversing. And to this day, we still have to deal with the empty tomb, whether you're a believer or unbeliever. You know, I did a little research on burial sites of famous people. It's kind of interesting. Now, if you want to go to Muhammad's, it's the Green Dome Mosque in Medina, Saudi Arabia. Confucius in Shandong, China. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, is Nauvoo, Illinois. Vladimir Lenin has actually been, uh, I'm going to say taxidermist, but he's, he's been uh, put in a glass case, and they preserved him. But they, they have him on display in Moscow Square, but they had to take him off display because he needed some work. And they <laughs> hoped to bring him out for his 150th birthday so they could see him. And people make these long pilgrimages. Elvis Presley, Isaac Newton in Trinity College, England. Charles Lindbergh, Maui, Hawaii, and our own Lakeview Cemetery. Who's buried there? 
Garfield, Garfield. 20th President of the United States, Elliot Ness, J.D. Rockefeller, the only American League, the only professional baseball player that was killed during a game, 1920, Ray Chapman, hit by a pitch ball, is buried there. What I'm saying is we, we are attracted to, people make visits to, pilgrimages to, the burial place of a holy man. We cannot do that. You understand? I don't care if you're a believer or an unbeliever. I was in Israel last month, and i got to tell you, the tomb is still empty. Amen. It just is. Okay, deal with it. You know, and that is what our faith is based on, an empty cross, an empty, cross, an empty grave. And so we look at this. Number one, when you study the scriptures, all four gospels, the highlight, the climactic point, what Jesus calls his hour, has now come, is his death, his burial, his resurrection. That's when he glorifies, as he says, I will not glorify my Father on this earth. All four gospel writers make that their main point. If you study Peter, and you study the sermons in the book of Acts, like in Acts chapter 2, he hammered, this is the main message of the Christian faith. And look at uh, chapter 2, verse 30 and 33. If somebody read that. Chapter 2, verse 30 through 33. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants upon his throne, he foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you see here. Oh, death, resurrection. They, and, and, and they'll continually say this was the plan of God. Was, this was the predetermined plan of God. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. Now it goes to just one verse. We'll talk about death and resurrection. Look at verse 15. And you killed the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. That's like the whole gospel message right there. Yeah. You killed him, God raised him, we're witnesses. You see, it's very succinct and simple. Look at chapter 4 and verse 10. Let it be known to you all, and all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by whom this man stands before you whole. Death. Resurrection. You see what I'm saying? He's, he keeps hammering. This is the message. And in, in Christendom today, there's a move even away from this. Uh, the, the, the death of Jesus. Physical resurrection of Jesus, you see? And if we lose this, we're, we're like what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. The church is no longer a church. It's a club. Albeit a nice club. You know, we drink coffee. But it's a club. Because why? We lost the essence. We lost the heart and soul of the Christian message. Any thoughts on this before we move? Yes, could you And John, just real quick, you know, all, all these are three great accounts of opportunities for large crowds or the Sanhedrin who were kind of hell-bent on proving this whole thing wrong or shutting up to the apostles. They were all folks who easily were witnesses. If it were a hoax, they could have said, wrong. <laughs> He's dead. He's right over there. He's buried right over there. But they had, they had nothing to say. Yeah, it's a good point. And Peter makes a point of this quote in scripture when he says, look, 
David's tomb is right over there. You can see David's tomb today. It's in, it's in the city of David, right? Okay. He says, his body is decaying. He's been dead about a thousand years when Peter's preaching that sermon. He goes, when God says in, in Psalm 16, a thousand years before the event, you will not allow your Holy One to see decay, he says he, he can't be referring to David, who was the Holy One that didn't see decay. It's Jesus. He was raised on the third day. Interestingly enough, how many days was Lazarus in the tomb? What did his sister say when Jesus says, move the stone? Fourth day decay sets in. Third day, not so. He was raised up. Yes, please. Uh, it was interesting, you know, after you spoke last Friday on uh, Saturday in the Wall Street Journal, uh, they, there was a uh, write-up and it said the main key, you know, more or less I'm paraphrasing, to Christianity is the resurrection. And it's a two-page article if anyone uh, gets a chance to uh, look at it. It kind of goes through and it tells, you know, the historical part of, you know, what changed in the Jewish, uh, you know, a lot of these guys actually follow, follow Jewish culture and how that this, this resurrection had to really happen. And this is a secular, you know, writing, Wall Street Journal, that it had to happen or these particular things couldn't have changed in history. So if, if you get a chance to read it, it's really... That's a good point to bring up. And when you talk about that, what happened in that first century? I mean, we'll look at this in a second, but there was a sea change. Because, look, number one, um, Peter, before Jesus' death and resurrection, who scared him? Who frightened him that he should deny that he's a disciple of Jesus? A soldier? A Roman soldier? What did the Sanhedrin? A girl. A little, a little girl. serving girl. To Peter. After the resurrection, after he met the risen Christ, after the Holy Spirit come, he goes out in the center of enemy territory and he proclaims Christ. He doesn't deny Christ. And they beat him and John and said, don't do this, don't preach in his name. And they let him out of prison. And with where they say he's at, he's out on the steps of the temple preaching Christ. What happened? You see, one of the things about the scripture that authenticates, and there's many things, the fulfillment of prophecy, but there's a witness of embarrassment. That is to say, it tells that these guys were weak. They were frightened. They were normal. Their leader just in the most shameful execution of all Crucifixion, scourging, stripped naked, spat upon, whipped, displayed out there. They're worried. Are they going to come after them next? You see? And they say that. They say that. Number two, who discovered the empty tomb? Who was the first to discover? The women. Women. Now, in that culture, how much authority did a woman's witness have? No. You would not have women. If you were trying to validate or make up this story, you probably would not have women being the one to do it. You see what I'm saying? Why, why is it, there's this transformation that happens that people that once kept kosher, by the time you get to Acts chapter 15, they're no longer requiring kosher. Circumcision for adult male believers. Sabbath, they start meeting on the first day of the week. You see, all of these things start going, why? You know, believing that a man could be God, God come in the flesh. This We can't have a hard time wrapping our minds in a modern 21st century Western American couple. But that was huge. Something seismic had to happen to cause that shift in belief system. Yes, somebody had, yes. A little bit loud. The parable of the prodigal son takes half his money, goes up, spends it inappropriately, and ends up in a pig farm. 
Exactly right. It is the historical moment of the Christian faith. Not just the Christian faith, but life changed after that. You see, life, life well, we won't get into it, but I mean, the, the world changed after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A whole new way of thinking, if you will, kingdom living, in terms of reaching out to the poor, rescuing babies thrown out in the dump. Uh, women were elevated, children had value. All these things started changing. Yes, Tom? Is there a sense in which the resurrection validates what we saw at the cross so that the cross is the hinge of history and the resurrection is the is God's approval and in the fulfillment of prophecy Jesus said I have power to you know no man takes my life from me I can lay it down and take it again yeah I mean certainly I mean if Jesus just died on the cross you can die a martyr's death you can die heroic death the highest reward we can give a soldier takes an act of Congress is what? Medal of Honor. Congressional, usually a man lays down his life for his fellow soldier. I mean, but Jesus didn't die a martyr's death. He didn't die a, a heroic death. He died an atoning death. You see what I'm saying? Well, how do we know that's true? Well, then you have the resurrection. You understand? First is the forgiveness of sins, and he, you know, he takes all our sins. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And after that, the resurrection validates that, raises him, but also empowers us to live that godly life. So you have those twin uh, critical doctrines of the Christian faith. Number one is salvation. You know, now Romans 8, 1, now there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And then number two, sanctification. Well, how do we live this new life? Well, we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, guided by Scripture, encouraged by brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you understand? It's a total package. Total. You know, it's just amazing. Uh, so you're coming down, it, it fulfills Scripture, as our brother said. You can go time and again, even Jesus' own Scripture, what he says he told his apostles, and they didn't get it. It says in John chapter 13, he told them this, the, these things so that after it happened, they might believe. And they do. You know, it just had to be post-resurrection. But the, So you have the fulfillment of Scripture. Number two, you have the transformation of uh, the early believers. What transformed? And again, even critics of Christianity have a hard time explaining what happened in that first century. I mean, if you get a hold of a book like Josh McDowell, Evidence Demands a Verdict, he quotes from at least 10 uh, first century, uh, second century historians and writers that reference Christianity or Christians or Jesus. Not always complimentary. This one is well authenticated, Tacitus, first century. I'll just give you an example. Historian, he's describing the famous fire in Rome at the time of Nero. He says, consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted most of the exquisite tortures on a class hated for their uh, abominations called Christians by the, by the populace. Christus, whom, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of the procurators, Pontius Pilate. The most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment broke out again, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. I could go on, Sosthenes, Josephus, Pliny. Uh, these are not friendly witnesses necessarily, but they're attesting to the fact that this Jesus lived. 
that he died, that this movement is growing and thriving all through the Mediterranean. Any thoughts on any of this? Yes, Dad, please. That Wall Street Journal article, I really encourage people to read it. It made me think for the first time how hard it must have been for people like 50 years <coughs> after Jesus or 150 years. When I was born, I had 2,000 years of people to convince me. And I never really thought about like how hard it must have been or how strong your faith probably needed to be like a hundred years after Jesus died, there was this track record of believers that this George Weibel article um, really helps crystallize right. in a non-intimidating way. That's a good point, Ed. Somebody else had their hand up on that? Yes, please. Well, I think uh, right now you can go watch the Apostle Paul <coughs> movie. It's fantastic. Yeah. And it's, it's from a whole different perspective than you would normally think. I recommend going to see the movie. It's, and it's biblically accurate. Anyone else? That's good comment, Adam. Like, uh, yeah, the article is good. Like you say, it's in a secular paper, and as I understand it, they're lovely bullet point in their outline reasons to believe the tomb is empty. See, we have a reasonable faith, you know, where Peter says, uh, uh, "Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give an answer to everyone that asks you for a reason to your faith." To do it with gentleness and respect for the other person. But our faith is reasonable if people would want to look and investigate it, like this detective does. Most people do not want to investigate it. See, and if they do, they're looking for reasons not to believe. Why? Because if, if Jesus is true and he is Lord, what does that mean for my lifestyle, my morality? It means change. You know, in India they have an old saying that a thief doesn't look... A man doesn't look for God for the same reason a thief doesn't look for a policeman. If he finds him, he has to change his behavior. There's a moral, there's a moral accountability. You know, if this is true, Jesus is not just going to be our Savior. He wants to be our Lord. He wants every part of us, you know, our motive, our thoughts, our thought, you know, all of these. I'm going to close in a minute because we have a special speaker this morning. So I just want to close on this, and we'll pick this up maybe down the road, reasons for the resurrection, and why we should move. Yes. Pretty amazing. I mean, Donald Gibson was on the talk show talking about why he did the resurrection. And Steve Cobra said, Well, I read I read all about the resurrection. What are you going to say? He said, really? You really know what happened? He said, yeah, he, he, he came alive. He goes, yeah. Well, yeah, there were 12 guys that were stranded. One killed himself. And what did they do? They started a church. 12 guys, no, no computers, no phones. They were scared. And two days later, Jesus showed up. And what they do then? Yeah, 2.3 billion people on planet Earth, some way, somehow, name the name of Jesus Christ today. I'm not saying they're all believers, but that shows you the influence that started with that death and that resurrection. And again, uh, that's a very important point to remember. Why did this happen? You've got to put it on the skeptic and say, okay, you give me a plausible explanation for the empty tomb, the growth, the transformed lives of believers, the fulfillment of prophecy. You tell me. And then what they come up with, like a hallucination, they all hallucinated, they were all lying, they were, why? Yeah. I mean, what motive did they have? These were not, you know, why did they set up camp? Why did they set up headquarters on the steps of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem? Yeah, so, John, the, I think the big thing for me is how they, they were cowards and how they, they, they left, they were all, I don't know what, 10 of them were crucified yeah. for the cause. I mean, th that's really the big differentiating factor. I want to wrap it up on this, and we'll pick this up again. But look at Romans chapter 8 for a moment. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then he goes down in this, and he says something very important in verse 9. Romans chapter 8. But if you are not, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. That, that's very important. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Do you understand? We are not Christians because we do Christian things. We do Christian things because we're Christians. You know, this is a very important point. Okay, we won't belabor it. Okay. And then he says, um, verse 10, And if Christ is in you, this is the resurrection life, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. And I close on this when you think of resurrection. But if the same spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, resurrection, dwells in you and me, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That empty tomb 2,000 years ago has direct implication for your life and my life today to live a victorious Christian life. Amen. Amen. On that, I want to introduce Robert Kylo, a special speaker. Thank you, man. First of all, I haven't been able to be at fellowship in a while just for scheduling issues, and just to be able to sit under the teaching of John Murtha, I'm reminded what a jewel we have in Northeast Ohio. This man knows God's word and he lives it. So God bless you, John. Well, I know this is definitely a time for me to decrease and let someone else increase. Uh, the word of God says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. On January 2nd of 2017, the Lord clearly told my wife, Leah, and I that I was supposed to run for mayor of Cleveland. What? Crazy. <laughs> And September 12, 2017, I finished fifth out of ninth. It was clear that there was no plans for me being the mayor of Cleveland, but the reason I ran was not to be the mayor. I'm thoroughly convinced it was because I was supposed to meet the Indianapolis 10-Point Coalition. These are men of God, pastors, who have been willing to leave their pulpits and go right into the streets of Indianapolis to bring the gospel of the kingdom to liberate youth from violence. And it says in the book of Proverbs, you see a man who excels in his work, he will stand before kings. These men are standing before the Vice President of the United States, the Attorney General of the United States, the Director of HUD of the United States, the Attorney General of Indiana, CBS National News, because what they're doing is working because it's built on God's word. God's word works. So I'd like to have Reverend Charles Harrison, who's the president of the Indianapolis 10-Point Coalition, a faith-based nonprofit, come share a little bit about his testimony and then what God has been doing through him. I'd also like to point out Chaplain David Cody and Pastor Terry Webster, members of the board of the Indianapolis Ten Point Coalition. So please give a Cleveland welcome. Thank you so much for this opportunity to speak before you this morning. Uh, I am Charles Harrison. I am the senior pastor of Orange United Methodist Church, and I have with me uh, Dr. Terry Webster Sr., who is the pastor of uh, New Corinthian Church, and Elder David Cody, who is uh, the associate minister at Christ Church.
Church Apostolic in Indianapolis. And I'm here just to share just briefly a little bit about the work that the church community is doing, particularly Christian churches in Indianapolis, to address um, the growing issue of urban gun violence. And, and as all of us pastors, we preach Christ, you know, every day of our lives. And, and our, you know, our pastor, a pretty good-sized church in Indianapolis. Um, and most of us spend a lot of time, you know, teaching our members uh, the Christian faith. And we have a lot of programs in our churches geared uh, for the community and, and for our members as we try to grow our churches and, and grow the kingdom. Uh, but there's an area that um, we decided as pastors in Indianapolis that the church was not really addressing. And we preach Christ every day, and, and I would drive to my church every day, and, and I pastored in the inner city of Indianapolis, and I would see things going on in the neighborhood. I would see drug dealers, I would see gangs, I would see neighborhood cliques, and I would drive in, and then after the end of the day, I would drive out, and I would see the same things going on. And then I would turn on the, the, the TV at night, and I would see some of the things on TV that I was seeing in person. Most of us, when we see the violence and we hear about it, we may say how tragic that was. Um, but most of us say that's not our issue and that's not our problem because it's not affecting us. I want to share a story uh, with you this morning in the brief time that I have. Um, the success of the church community in Indianapolis has been really remarkable. We took four high crime neighborhoods in Indianapolis um, and the violence reduction has been remarkable. In one neighborhood today, which was a high crime neighborhood, we're celebrating 904 days without anybody being killed. It was in a, a neighborhood uh, where we were seeing a large number of homicides. There was a gang war. Four gangs were, uh, you know, warring against one another. And when the church came in. We became the light of Christ in the midst of that community. We came out of our pulpits. Uh, we went into the streets. We had uh, men in our church and women who, who were dead to sin. Um, but because of the power of the gospel, they became alive in Christ. And they started sharing their stories of when they once was drug dealers and gang members and had went to prison and had come out and their lives had been transformed. And they wanted to go back into the community to clean up what they messed up. And they took their witness, their story, to young men in the streets who were living the life that they once lived, who were involved in criminal activity. And they started sharing with them a better way, a better way for them to live their life, a better way for them to deal with their hopelessness, a better way for them to deal with the fact that they see no future for themselves. Those who were caught up in circumstances where they didn't see a better life. All they saw was the life around them of crime and violence and drug selling and abandonment by their parents. Many didn't know their fathers. So we took the gospel to them. In all four neighborhoods that we patrolled in, and we focused on particularly young men of color between the ages of 12 and 24 that are disproportionately impacted by violence, are disproportionately impacted by uh, going to prison. They became our target. 
Many of those young men don't have father figures and positive male role models in their life. They became the individuals that we wanted to witness to about the love of Christ. So we would go out every night in, into these neighborhoods and we would be a witness for Christ. And we would go where they were. We wouldn't shy away from it. We go where they were. We go where the gangs are. We go where the drug dealers are. We go where the neighborhood cliques are. Young people with guns. And we would go in the power of Christ. I said the other day in the four neighborhoods, because in all four neighborhoods, uh, all four neighborhoods went up, went up two years without a youth homicide between the ages of 12 and 24. Three of those neighborhoods went a whole year remarkable. People trying to figure out how did you do it without anybody being killed. One of those neighborhoods in Crown Hill was ranked the 17th most dangerous neighborhood in America. Went a whole year without anybody being killed. And people wondered, how did that happen? Well, we became light in the midst of darkness. We just didn't preach about it on Sunday morning. But we took what we preached and we took it to the streets. And I believe that wherever we placed our feet, the presence of God was there. And not only did we walk the streets, but some of those young men that had spent their uh, many years in prison, who felt like they had the mark of Cain on them, who didn't see no hope. They served their time in prison. They got out of prison. They felt like they were still in prison because the doors of opportunity were being closed. It was Christian men and women who owned businesses that were willing to give them a chance, to give them a second chance and a third chance, like we believe Christ has given us. Because all of us in here have not been where we are today. But if it had not been for the love of Christ in our life and how Christ had saved us and picked us up from wretched places, I want to share this story in because when I was 14 years old, my brother uh, had been killed at the age of 21. He was shot down in Louisville, Kentucky. He was shot 10 times. He was left to die. My brother died. I remember the phone call that night as he came to our home. I remember hearing my father and my mother cry out. I got up out of the bed. I wanted to see what was going on. And my father was on his knees in tears as he had heard the, the news about um, his son, my older brother, being killed. I remember the day that we had my brother's wake. And in the streets, even though the police may not know who did the killing, in the streets, people know who did the killing. It was said to us who had killed my brother. My parents was not aware because they were not in the streets. I was. And the three individuals that had killed my brother came to the wake and they embraced my parents. They cried with my parents. And as they cried with my parents, I started to become filled with rage and anger. Because I knew they were the ones that killed my brother, but yet they were pretending like they were grieving with the family. So the next day, they came to the funeral. And once again, they embraced my parents. They cried with my parents. This time, my parents asked them to sit with the family. So they sat with the family. I'm watching this. I'm enraged by what I've seen. I was so enraged by what I was seeing that I was beginning to plot to kill them. So I got my friends together, and we were plotting to kill those who had killed my brother. See, I was a 14-year-old young man. I was confused. I wasn't a bad kid. But the circumstances confused me. And all I knew was revenge. All I knew was anger. There was a group of men in a church.
who had gotten wind of what we were plotting. And those Christian men confronted me and my friends. They engaged us where we were in our pain and in our brokenness. And it was those men that kept me from falling off the cliffs. So as I was hearing the story about the Boston 10 Point Coalition and what the church community had done, it reminded me of what had happened when a group of church men who just didn't preach Christ, who just didn't talk about the love of Christ, but these men showed their love for Christ and their love for me by caring enough about my life that they got involved in my life. And brothers, I said that if my life was changed by a group of committed church members who just didn't preach Christ, but they showed the love of Christ, what could we do in all of our inner cities and in all of our areas where young people are being gripped for violence? If we began to take the love of Christ from our pulpits, from our four walls of our churches, into these neighborhoods, and we become the light of Christ. We didn't go out in the daytime, we go out at nighttime. We go out at 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 1 o'clock at nighttime when things are going on. But we go in the power of Christ. And we go as the light of Christ. And we have made a tremendous difference in neighborhoods in Indianapolis. We're now uh, going to go to the east side of Indianapolis. We're here in Cleveland. We're traveling all over the country. And I want to say to you that I believe that if we preach Christ, not just by our preaching, but by our living and by our caring, then we can save those who are lost and those who are gripped by gun violence. We are living witness. We have four neighborhoods now that have gone over 200 days without a young person being killed. We just started on the east side. We're at 73 days in one of the worst neighborhoods on the east side of Indianapolis. Nobody's been killed. We can't stop all the violence, but we can reduce it. And we can give hope to those who have no hope. Amen.
that, Lord, you would liberate our young people from death, that you would liberate our young people from bondage, and that you would use organizations in this room, businesses in this room, leaders in this room, and Ten Point Coalition to go where there's the need. Because as we know, the gospel of the kingdom always wins over the realms of darkness. And all you need to do to turn, uh, push back darkness is to turn the light on. So Lord, we choose today to turn the light of the gospel on. And we say, blessed be the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the king of glory. He's coming again as a conquering hero. And he's asking us to give us his all. And he most certainly deserves it. We pray all this in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.